Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Every once in a while, you read something about a star long since forgotten, and you wonder, how do we not know more about this guy? Well, Monty Pearson is one of those guys, a fixture in the New York Yankees rotation of the late 1930s. Pearson's mark in the World Series is actually incredible, and next... On Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the career of a World Series star for the New York Yankees, whom so many of us have never heard of. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 111, Monty Pearson. Like I said in my tease, every once in a while, you read something about a star long since forgotten, and you wonder... How do we not know more about this guy? Well, one of the organizations that I am a member of, SABRE, the Society for American Baseball Research, is a wonderful organization, and I encourage anyone listening to this podcast who is a baseball fan, a sports fan, and who is not a member of SABRE to visit SABRE.org. That's S-A-B-R dot org and join. The bio project that Sabre has is nothing less than phenomenal. Literally thousands of biographies on major league players. Every week, a newsletter is published and in it, there is a list of new biographies published. A few times a year, Sabre publishes the Baseball Research Journal, a treasure trove of statistical analyses, in-depth biographies, and more. Now, no, this is not a commercial for Sabre. Rather, just information for my fellow baseball fans. In a recent newsletter, there was a link to a new bio by Dan Schoenholtz about Monty Pearson. Now, Pearson's regular season record over the course of his 10-year career is good, not spectacular. He spent his first four years with the 
Cleveland Indians going 36 and 31, with his best season being, at least in wins, 18 and 13 in 1934. His last season in baseball was with the Cincinnati Reds in 1941, where he appeared in seven games, started four, and he went one and three. But in between, he spent five years with the New York Yankees. Those were actually some pretty darn good years. Over the course of those five years, he went 63 and 27. His best mark coming in 1936 when he went 19 and 7. But it was Pearson's stats in the World Series that really caught my attention. The Yankees won the World Series in 1936, 37, 38, and 1939. In 1936, the Yankees beat the New York Giants in six games. In 1937, they took out the Giants in five games. In 1938, they swept the Cubs. And in 1939, they swept the Reds. In each of those series, Pearson started one game, and his numbers in those games are ridiculous. Four games started. He completed three of those four games, and the one game he didn't complete, he pitched eight and two-thirds innings. So, out of a possible 36 innings, he pitched 35 and two-thirds innings. He went 4-0 and with a 1.01 ERA, and his game against the Reds in 1939 was a two-hit shutout. Absolutely remarkable. And Pearson's story is quite interesting, even his post-career life. And I'm going to talk about all of it with Dan Schoenholtz. Before we get there, however, a little house cleaning. Sports Forgotten Heroes is a member of the Sports History Network. This is a wonderful network of podcasts, all concentrating on different aspects of sports history. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. So much there for you to enjoy. Of course, I encourage everyone to check out my website for this podcast, sportsfh.com. Here is where you can learn more about the stars me and my guests talk about. I have links to stats and footage of each star as well. You can also click on the Ask a Question link to see forgotten stars whom I will be discussing in the near future, and you can submit a question here as well. Have some fun and participate. Remember, that sportsfh.com. You can also follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. On Facebook, just look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page and look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram as well. Also, if you think about it, please let all of your family and friends know about Sports Forgotten Heroes as well. I'm sure there's content here everyone will enjoy. And as always, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating, and if you can, write a small review. As always, thanks for listening. Your support is greatly appreciated and does not go unnoticed. Okay, let's get into today's show with Dan Schoenholtz about the terrific career of pitcher Monty Pearson. 
Dan, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am thrilled you agreed to uh, to join me today. Yeah, thanks, Warren. I'm actually also really uh, excited and looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. Well, we have to start with this, Dan. Where did your interest in Monty Pearson come from, and how did you discover him? Yeah, so it's a bit of a long story. Um, I work for a city, uh, the city of Fremont in uh, the Bay Area in California. And years ago, one of my colleagues who knew I was a baseball fan um, informed me that she had run across a guy in town who was a former major leaguer, and his name was Emil Melo, not a household name at all. No. <laughs> um, he, he, he turned out to be um, a guy who had played for many, many years in the Pacific Coast League and had um, just come up briefly uh, in the major league. In fact, he only got one hit in his career. Hmm. But anyway, I, uh, I connected with him. I met him. I uh, really liked him. He was, at that point, he was in his 90s. He was one of the oldest living major league ball players. And um, so I got very interested in him and I researched his uh, life and career for the um, Society of American Baseball Research, SABR, uh, bio project where, where people research and write biographies of people who played Major League Baseball. And in the course of um, researching Emil Melo's life, I got very interested in some of the players and managers that he had interacted with in his career, um, one of whom was Monty Pearson, who was his teammate on the Oakland Oaks in mm -hmm. the early 1930s. Mm -hmm. And so when I, um, you know, ran across Monty Pearson's uh, name, looked him up, I was interested to find out not only that he'd had really kind of a very interesting um, career and a successful career in a lot of ways with the Yankees. Um, but I also learned that he had been a student at UC Berkeley, which is my alma mater. So that um, kind of sealed the deal. And I decided I was going to uh, research his life and career as well. And quite, quite an interesting life. And before we get into the details about his career, and is phenomenal, and I mean phenomenal, track record in the World Series. Tell us a little bit more about Monty Pearson. Where did he come from? What was his background? Yeah, so Monty Pearson was born in either 1908 or 1909, depending on the sources that, uh, that you trust. Um, he uh, was born in... Uh, in the Bay Area, but then uh, his parents moved to Utah when he was a baby, and his father was killed when he was just, uh, you know, when he, when he was still a baby, basically. Um, Monty's father was killed in a mining accident. Mm. And uh, he and his uh, mother and um, three siblings, um, then came back to California, his mom remarried, and they settled in the Fresno area in uh, California's Central Valley. And so he grew up in, um, in Fresno and grew up playing baseball and um, ended up uh, playing both high school baseball and then playing in something called the Twilight League, 
um, which was a sort of a semi-pro league in in Fresno. And, and Monty was a, a originally a catcher and a third baseman. He was a good hitter. Um, he had a great arm, though. And uh, eventually, one of his coaches converted him to a pitcher. And um, that's when he was discovered by a local scout and was signed to a minor league contract. And he, and he had a, a, a decent minor league career. He bounced around a little. But his big days in the minors were with those Oakland Oaks of the PCL, which by some accounts, people say yeah. was a, a, almost like a second major league. The talent was that good. So tell us about his minor league career, if you can, and how he was finally discovered and by whom. Yeah, so he was he was discovered um, by a local scout um, who was connected with the Oaks, and so he recommended him for um, you know for the Oaks to sign. They signed him. Um, it, they had they were affiliated. The Oaks were, uh, as you said, part of the Pacific Coast League, which was then considered essentially the third major league uh, because of the talent level. And many of the teams had affiliations with um, with other minor league teams in the lower minors. And so he was originally uh, sort of farmed out to a, a, a club in Arizona um, where he uh, where he pitched for part of one year while he's sort of getting some seasoning um, and then uh, came back to the Oaks in 1930 and stuck with them and um, pitched the full season with the Oaks in 1930, I believe. I, I should actually double check that. It may have been 1931. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, once he stuck with the Oaks, uh, you know, he, he was recognized as a very um, talented, up-and-coming young pitcher. Um, the Oaks were actually kind of a mediocre um, club in the Pacific Coast League, even though they had um, – a fair amount of major league talent. Um, probably the the uh, biggest star on the team when um, when Monty came up was their catcher, a guy named Ernie Lombardi, who uh, sure. uh, went on to great major league success and and is now a Hall of Famer. And he also comes up again in Monty Pearson's story. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, yeah, Monty. Um, Pitched it for the Oaks. He he had a good couple of seasons, and um, it was uh, you know pretty clear that he was major league material. There was a lot of speculation in the uh, local press that he'd be going up any time, and you know they the sports writers were sort of um, making predictions about which team would sign him and for how much he would he would be sold. Um, Ultimately, it was the Cleveland Indians who uh, won the bidding for him um, and purchased him for uh, $35,000 from um, from the Oakland Oaks. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of pitcher was Monty? Did he throw fastballs, off-speed stuff? Tell us about the kind of pitcher he was. Yeah, from what I've been able to discover, he was actually kind of a fireballer um, in the minor leagues and when he first came up in the major leagues. But when you hear Monty Pearson now described, um, or you read about his kind of, um, 
World Series success and his years with the Yankees, he's described as a as a curveballer, sort of a master of the soft stuff. Um, so I think you know he, he when he came up, he had a he had a great fastball. He had some control issues. I think he was trying to get a handle on uh, controlling the curveball. And then sort of as he aged and maybe his fastball slowed down a bit, um, he really became a curveball specialist. Mm-hmm. A good one. Well, in 1931, as you said, with Oakland, he went 17 and 16, was signed by Cleveland, but he got off to a rocky start with the Indians. He didn't last long, did he? Tell us about um, his uh, uh, the term cup of coffee uh, his first go round with with the Indians. Yeah, so you know, in his first major league appearance, um, he came into sort of a blowout game uh, against Detroit. He, uh, you know, he had a good first inning, escaped unscathed, but then in his second inning of work, he got sort of raked over the coals and mm-hmm. um, gave up several runs and. Um, you know, finally, uh, his manager sort of took mercy on him and yanked him, took him out. He he uh, he. Although he was on the club for a couple of months, he only had five or six appearances. He had an ERA over ten. Um, you know, he just he was wasn't quite ready, um, and the Indians recognized that. Sent him sent him back down to their top farm team, which was the uh, Toledo Mud Hens. And while he was there, uh, uh, the manager was a former major league catcher, a guy named Steve O'Neill. And he, he was really good working with pitchers. And um, he sort of helped Pearson start to get better control of his curveball and, um, and worked with them. And uh, the rest of the year he spent in uh, Toledo. He had a, not a very good record one loss record, but uh, his ERA, I think, was under four for the rest of the season at uh, at Toledo, which at that time was a pretty good ERA. And um, I think uh, Cleveland was looking at him as, uh, you know, a talented guy that they'd bring back in 1933. And, and they did. And he had a pretty good first full year with the Indians. He went 10 and 5. And he led the American League with a 2.33 ERA. And he was off and running. His manager at the time was Walter Johnson. And Johnson had nothing but the highest of praise for him. How impressed was Johnson with Pearson? Yeah, so... um you got that exactly right. Walter Johnson was named manager um, mid-season in 1933. Um, Pearson had started the year in um, Toledo and had dominated there. Um, so it was only a matter of time before he got called up. And when Johnson was hired, um, he took over for a guy named Roger Peckinpah, who had been the, uh, the Cleveland manager to start the season. When Johnson took over, um, his first personnel move was to bring up Pearson to the big club. And um, he didn't regret it. Um, Pearson uh, had an outstanding rookie year, as you mentioned. Uh, he won 10 games in you know about a half a season. His ERA, as, as you mentioned, was 2.33. He won the ERA crown as a rookie. Um, and I think, you know, 
for those listening, many may know, but many might not know that in the early 1930s, baseball was really a, a hitter's game. And uh, hitting stats were, uh, were sort of inflated compared to, compared to what they are today in terms of batting average um, and run scoring. And uh, it was a combination of um, small ballparks and, um, and uh, you know, just rules that basically favored the hitters. And so for, for a rookie to come in and to uh, kind of, uh, you know, dominate in the way that, that Pearson did was almost unheard of. And, and his, um, his ERA of 2.33 was, um, was outstanding. And according to some of the advanced metrics, his 1933 season was the second best by any pitcher in the entire decade behind wow. only lefty. Yes. And I know behind only lefty Groves 1931 season where he won more than 30 games. So uh, it was uh, quite a debut by, by Pearson. And it, um, it had Johnson and the Indians um, predicting big things for him. Well, you know, he spent that part of that 33 season with the Indians going 10 and five with that great ERA and he was there for 34 and 35. So really, you know, just over two and a half years with the Indians, he went 36 and 31, including an 18 win season in 1934. But you might say he just wasn't that overwhelming, at least not to them. He, he, he didn't reach his potential. Something just wasn't there. Yeah, it definitely. He, he did, he did not uh, dominate the next couple of years in the way they had in his uh, rookie year. And he, he did win 18 games, as you mentioned in 1934. And um, he, you know, he was decent. I would say he was sort of an average starting pitcher mm-hmm. uh, in the American league in, uh, in 34. And then in 35, he was a bit worse and, um, and started to have some injury problems. And what you started to read in the, uh, contemporary accounts in 1934 and 1935 were these doubts that people started to raise first, you know, they were just here and there, and then they were sort of more, um, uh, you know, they were more present, more widely seen in newspaper articles, questioning his toughness, um, you know, questioning when he um, was injured, whether he really was injured or whether he was just soft, um, you know, questioning how much he cared. Hmm. And so he, he really started to uh, get a reputation of being sort of um, a person who was very talented but wasn't a winner. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Dan. I recently did a podcast about Howard Emke, and many thought Emke lost concentration on occasion, and that contributed to his not reaching his full potential. Sort of sounds the same as, you know, with Pearson. Some said he lacked competitive spirit, very interesting, uh, uh, really good parallel there. So the Indians, you know, I, they, they sort of gave up on him and they let him go. They, they traded him to the Yankees. 
Why didn't they stick with him any longer? Were you able to figure out any of that? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, part of it was that I think, you know, some in the organization felt that he wasn't likely to, you know, kind of live up to his talent level. So I think that was part of it. I think also, though, you know, the the guy that the Yankees offered up in um, trade, a guy named Johnny Allen, was quite a talented pitcher himself. Um, and the Indians gave up not only Pearson, but also another pitcher, a guy named Steve Sundra. Uh, and, and, and that's get. the guy and that's the guy the Yankees really wanted. Right. Was Sundra. Yeah, that's it, it's interesting, you know, given how their relative uh, you know, how their careers turned out, Sandra and Pearson. But at the time, um, Jacob Ruppert, who was the owner of the Yankees, uh, after the trade had been made, and I think it was actually uh, a year or two later, maybe after Pearson had shown that he had a lot of value, um, uh, Ruppert, in an interview, indicated that actually when they made the trade, um, their, their uh, number one target was Sandra. And um, and they had thought that Allen was a better pitcher than Pearson, but they thought that if they could get Thunder in the deal, it would be a good deal for them. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was uh, kind of interesting <laughs> confession yeah. on the part of the owner. Yeah, I mean, you know, Sundra, eh, you know, he had a marginal career at best. He pitched nine years, went 56 and 41. His best year was 1939. When he went eleven and one with a two point seven six ERA for the Yankees, but the throw in Monty Pearson, he wound up being the jewel of the trade for the Yankees. By the way, I looked it up. Johnny Allen went twenty and ten his first year with the Indians, fifteen and one his second, and fourteen and eight his third. So the Indians did pretty well in that trade as well. It's not as if the Yankees didn't up didn't give up good talent to get Sundra and to get Pearson. I'm just right. not so sure. And and you already mentioned about Colonel Rupert that the Yankees realized just how good Pearson was. He got off to a great start with them. Talk about how his attitude might've changed and the type of pitcher he became. I mean, he went 19 and seven with a three, seven, one ERA and he wasn't that shabby at the plate either. You know, you said he started his career in the minors uh, as, as, you know, as a hitter. And with the Yankees that first year, he had 253 and had 20 RBI. But tell us about, you know, the change of scenery for Monty Pearson going from Cleveland to the Yankees and stepping into that rotation. How competitive did he become? How did the change of scenery help him? Yeah, well, um, you know, Pearson uh, showed or stated uh, that he was very excited to go to the Yankees. And it made sense, partly because the Yankees, even though they hadn't won uh, the pennant in three years, they they last won the pennant in 1932. But, uh, you know, they were a contending team. And uh, at that time, players were not particularly well compensated and, and making it to the World Series or winning the World Series greatly increased, uh, you know, the player's earning potential. And so Pearson, you know, when he was asked how he felt about the trade, one of the things he said was, well, you know, 
I'm super happy because I, I'm in this to make money and um, my earning potential just went up. So, you know, that might have been part of what motivated him and got him, um, you know, sort of in the right frame of mind to pitch well. Um, also, you know, he was going to a club with a really good defense. He was going to a club um, with a uh, great offense. Uh, you know, he's going to he's going to a ballpark that was, um, you know, had short porches down the line, but um, had big center field and power alleys. So, uh, you know, that stood to help him. So, um, yeah, you know, he was he was uh, definitely positive about the trade. He, he went to the Yankees. They uh, immediately inserted him into the starting rotation. He was the third starter behind two mm-hmm. Hall of Famers, mm-hmm. um, Red Ruffing and Lefty Gomez. Mm-hmm. And he quickly, you know, demonstrated his value. He pitched well, uh, got off to a good start. He had sort of a pattern in his, most of his career. He got off to good starts early, sometimes faded, sometimes kept it going. Um, and, you know, he was sort of true to that pattern in 1936. Um, he got off to a good start. He made the all-star team. Um, and in 36, he kept it going the full year and he won 19 games. And, uh, as you mentioned, he was, a, he had a good year at the plate and he hit about 250 and drove in 20 runs. So all in all, it was just a very, very, um, successful first year for Pearson. Yeah, you know, um, and this is where I think the Monty Pearson story gets really interesting. So bear with me for a second. I mean, when you consider the roster of great pitchers to have appeared in the World Series for the New York Yankees, the list reads like a who's who of baseball. Whitey Ford, Lefty Gomez, Red Ruffing. Roger Clemens, Mariano Rivera, Ron Guidry. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And the one name I bet very few recognize is that of Monty Pearson. And his record in the four games he pitched, one in each year, his first year with the Yankees, 36, then 37, 38, and 39. I mean, his record can't be any better than it is. He went 4-0. He pitched three complete games. The one game he didn't finish was in 1938 when he pitched eight and two-thirds innings. I mean, listen to these numbers. Winning percentage, 1,000. His whip, 729. His ERA, 1.01. So, I mean, it... It doesn't get much better than that. And his first one came in 1936, Game 3, Yankees against the New York Giants, and he beats Carl Hubble 5-2, to two, striking out 7, walking 2, complete game. I mean, I, yeah, I just might have given the answers, but is there anything in particular that stands out. I mean, some thought he wouldn't even take them out because of a late season injury. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, th- that was one of the really fun parts about, uh, about researching Pearson's career and life was, was learning about his performances in the world series and sort of, um, yeah, each one sort of had its own character. Each game that he pitched each year, um, had its own character and its own story. And, um, 
you know, it was very interesting. I, the 1936 game in particular, I found intriguing. Um, you know, it was his first World Series start. He was pitching against Carl Hubble, who had that year finished the season with uh, 16 consecutive wins. Wow. And then, yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the, in the midst of the longest um, regular season winning streak in baseball history, he continued it into 1937 by winning his first eight decisions in uh, 37. So altogether he won 24 regular season decisions in a row. He had won 16 um, to close out the season, the 1936 season. He'd also won game one of the world series against the Yankees. And he had started obviously for the, for the giants and beaten, beaten the Yanks in in games two and three. um, The Yankees had won. So the Yanks had a a two games to one lead. Pearson um, did not pitch game three because right at the end of the season, um, as was often the case with Pearson, um, he uh, was injured. He had an injury back problem that um, popped up right at the end of the season. And uh, there was a lot of speculation that he wouldn't pitch at all in the world series. Um, That turned out to be incorrect. His back problem abated enough for him to, to start game four. Um, but he was facing Hubble, who was coming back on, I think, three days rest. There'd been a rain out, so uh, there was a, a little extra time in there. And, um, you know, the, the uh, Giants, I think, were favored, although I think the Yanks were still favored to win the World Series. I think in that game, you know, Hubble appeared to be unbeatable. Um, but the Yankees got to him. Um, and uh, before I talk about the game, the other the other thing that was really interesting about uh, Game Three of the '36 World Series was that one of the spectators at the game was a very well-known baseball writer, a guy named Arnold Hanno. Hmm. And Arnold Hanno wrote a, a famous baseball book called A Day in the Bleachers, which is about uh, his day in the bleachers at the 1951 World Series, or I'm sorry, the 1954 World Series, where he witnessed um, Willie Mays making one of the greatest catches ever made, sure. one of the most famous defensive <laughs> yeah. plays ever made. Right. Um, on, on Vic Warris of the Indians, where he, he, you know, he caught a ball with his back um, to the plate about, you know, several 400 and some feet from, from, from home plate. He, he tracked down this, this, uh, incredible shot off the bat of Vic Wirtz. Anyway, Arnold Hanna is famous for his description of that game. And I have that book and happened to look at it while I was researching Monty Pearson's life. And amazingly at the beginning of the, the book, he makes reference to the fact that his first World Series game had been uh, in 1936, Game Three, when he'd gone to, or Game Four, when he'd gone to, uh, you know, the um, to Yankee Stadium to uh, to see Carl Hubble take on the Yankees, and um, you know, he was a big Giants fan. Arnold Hanna was, and was crushed when uh, when uh, Pearson beat him. But the, the other amazing thing about Hanno is that he's still alive. He's 99 years old. Wow. And he's, st- he's still um, active, uh, you know, in sort of 
baseball circles. And um, through the Society of American Baseball Research, I was able to track him down and I was able to call him and interview him about this game. And it was a big thrill for me. Sure. And it was just and it was just amazing his recall of this game that had occurred um, 84 years prior. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty amazing. So, so um, the Yankees got off to an early lead. They scored three runs early and two of those runs were on a Lou Gehrig homer. And that homer landed only a few feet from where Arnold Hanno the 14-year-old Arnold Hanno was sitting <laughs> sitting in the bleachers um, enjoying the game, um, although he didn't enjoy that part of it because he was a big Giants fan. So anyway, the um, you know the the uh, Yanks got off to a, to a, a good lead. Um, the Giants couldn't do anything with Pearson, and as Hanno noted, you know Pearson was throwing soft stuff by that time. So that's what that's what Arnold Hanno remembered from the bleachers that, you know, he could see that it was curveball after curveball and the Giants just couldn't uh, connect. Um, they did manage to score a, a couple of runs, but by then the Yankees were ahead. Um, you know, I think they had a, a five. I think they were ahead five nothing. They may have. I, I don't remember exactly the order of the scoring, but basically, um, you know, they had a comfortable lead. And um, and we're never really able to uh, solve Pearson. And he threw a complete game and the Yankees won five to two. And um, uh, one of the other kind of fun things about it is that Pearson also got two hits against the great Carl Hubble mm. in that game. So not only did he outpitch him, but he also solved him as a hitter. Wow, very cool. Very cool stuff. This is this is why I do this podcast. I love to hear these <laughs> kinds of stories. Very cool stuff. Let's let's move on. 1937. Somewhat of a a typical year for Monty Pearson. He suffers through many injuries, you know, does he have the drive? Does he have the competitive spirit? It's all brought back into question. He goes nine and three. Tell us about 37. Yeah, so 37, um, Pearson, you know, he hurt his ankle in spring training, and that sort of set the tone for the year. He, he came back in time to start the regular season and got off to a pretty good start, but uh, in May, he was diagnosed with a torn muscle, and that sidelined him for, for a month. He came back in June, but his arm never really got right, and, you know, he was used sort of sparingly. Um, so he ended up, as you mentioned, winning nine games that year. He had a good ERA, 3.17, so an excellent ERA in, in that era. Um, but, again, it, it wasn't clear um, whether he'd be starting or not. Uh, in the World Series. Um, ultimately, though, uh, again, he got a game three start. It was again, um, the 1937 series was again a Subway Series in New York, the Yankees against the Giants. So mm -hmm. kind of a repeat of the 36 classic. Um, this time, uh, the Yankees won game one and two behind their two Hall of Famers, uh, Gomez and Red Ruffing. And then Pearson started game three. And once again, he, he pitched lights out. Um, 
the Yankees again put a bunch of runs on the board. They led five nothing by the time um, the Giants even got a base runner, um, and the Giants did score a run in the in the seventh. But um, Pearson cruised, and then in the ninth, he sort of tired, and uh, the Yankees were able to load the bases against him. So with two outs, uh, manager Joe McCarthy, another Hall of Famer, um, pulled Pearson. And Johnny Murphy, who was the Yankees um, relief ace at the time, came in and got the final out for the save. It's the one game that he didn't complete. He only went eight and two-thirds innings. I mean, out of 36 possible innings, he pitched 35 and two-thirds. He, uh, you know, over those four World Series games, it's crazy stuff. 1938. He did pitch a full season, got off to a slow start, but he went 16 and 7 with a 397 ERA. And he caught fire midway through the season. And the highlight came on August the 27th against his former team, the Cleveland Indians, in the nightcap of a doubleheader. Tell us about it. Yeah, so as you said, um, Pearson got off his slow start, kind of unusual for him, but then he did uh, start to pitch really well. He caught fire. He ended up winning 10 consecutive games kind of uh, in the middle of the summer. And the final game of that 10-game win streak was on August 27th. It was the, um, the nightcap of a doubleheader at Yankee Stadium against Cleveland. And he was pitching on only two days rest because the Yankees had this brutal schedule that had several doubleheaders uh, in the space of a week. And so he could only get two days rest. But uh, that didn't appear to phase him. Um, he was perfect through the first three innings. He walked a couple guys in the, um, in the fourth inning. But then he, uh, he struck out a guy named Jeff Heath. Um, he then got a ground out from Earl Averill, who was one of the um, Cleveland sluggers, and then uh, and then struck out uh, uh, a guy named Hal Trotsky. He was a big power hitter for Cleveland. Yeah, we did a uh, so, podcast on Hal. What's that? I did a podcast on Hal. He was a uh, oh not, wow. Yeah, if not for Lou Gehrig, he might have been a, a, a much better known ball player. He was he yeah. was a good ball player. He was a good ball player. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that, uh, ended Monty's, uh, hopes for a perfect game, but, uh, for the next four innings, he was perfect again. And the Yankees meanwhile were, um, pounding the ball as they tended to do in those years. They were, uh, they, they scored 13 runs in that game. So Pearson didn't have to worry too much about, uh, about losing. He just had to worry about trying to, keep his no hitter going. So he went into the ninth. He'd not given up a hit to that uh, point at Yankee stadium. Nobody'd ever thrown a no hitter there. Uh, the stadium had opened in the early twenties um, and uh, still had not been christened with a no hitter. So the crowd was really into it. Um, you know, if you read the accounts of that game, it sounds like people were, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, riding on every pitch, a lot of suspense, um, Pearson, uh, got the first, uh, batter, a guy named Frankie Pitlack. Um, oh, I'm sorry. The, the first, the first hitter, he got the first hitter, uh, pinch hitter, a guy named Moose Solters. He struck out on three pitches. 
The next batter was the catcher for the Indians, a guy named Frankie Pitlack. And he hit a slow ground ball that looked like he might beat it out. But um, Joe Gordon, uh, the Yankee second baseman, made a great play on it and threw him out. And um, so the last hope for the Indians was a guy named Bruce Campbell. And he made good contact, lined the ball, but it was straight to George Selkirk, the uh, Yankees outfielder. And Pearson had his no-hitter, the first ever in Yankee Stadium history. Wow. Cool. Again, cool stuff. But, you know, injuries again pop up. And there were reports that he might not pitch in the World Series, the 1938 World Series against the Chicago Cubs, what was it this time, and did he pitch? Yeah, so, um, you know, this time, you know, he had, uh, he had an arm problem. It wasn't very well um, defined or described in the newspapers, but it was sort of some problem with his arm threatened uh, his ability to start in the 38 series. So, again, it was, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, uncertain what was going to happen. And as it happened every, every year, basically he recovered in time and uh, made his start. And again, he was uh, starting in game three and he uh, pitched as well or better than he had in his previous two world series starts. Um, he gave up five hits through a complete game, um, five, two uh, win. Uh, one of those runs was unearned. Um, and, you know, he earned the respect of the Cubs uh, player manager, Gabby Hartnett, another Hall of Famer, who basically um, said that Pearson showed us more than any other pitcher. And, you know, he was basically wondering, you know, where he got his stuff. <laughs> he said he'd seen good curveball pitchers, but really nobody he compared to Monty Pearson. Mm. And um, that the Yankees had won the first few games, so this they went up 3-0 and they completed their World Series sweep the next day. Yeah, he pitched another complete game, gave up five hits, an earned run, struck out nine, walked two. I mean, when it comes to the World Series, you cannot question the competitive spirit of Monty Pearson. But you know what? In 1939, he got off to a slow start, and that's exactly what happened. People were accusing him of no competitive spirit. How fair or unfair was that assessment? Yeah, you know, Warren, it's really difficult to say. Um, you know, after all these years, you know, you read this in the paper, they're definitely uh, were a lot of sort of um, allegations and uh, there was a lot of theorizing going on. And sometimes you say, well, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There wouldn't be this much sort of, um, you know, discussion about his, uh, his attitude if, um, if it wasn't true. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that, you know, back in the 30s and 40s when, when people got hurt, you know, they were expected to, you know, play through it and, you know, risk their health and their careers, you know, for the team. And um, I think, you know, there were some players at that time who basically 
when they were injured, they knew they were injured. They knew they couldn't help the team, you know, given the physical difficulties they were facing. And they kind of didn't buy into the idea that it was um, good for everybody for to play through the injury and, um, you know, you know, basically go out there at less than full strength. And I can't tell you what, you know, which of those was the truth at that mm -hmm. time. Maybe mm -hmm. it was a little of both. Um, but certainly um, Pearson showed that when he was healthy and when he um, was focused, he was as good as anybody. Well, you know, his ERA in that 1939 season wasn't all that good. It was a 4-4-9, but he did go 12-5. and five. I mean, the Yankees had one heck of a team. Um, but you know what? He was given another start in the World Series, this time against the Cincinnati Reds, and you can't question the competitive spirit in that game. That start might have been the best of all his World Series performances. And this is where Ernie Lombardi comes into play, his, his former teammate with Oakland in the PCL. Tell us about that game against the Cincinnati Reds. Yeah, absolutely, Warren. Um, so, yeah, the 1939 Yankees were a juggernaut. This is um, the, the, a team that was making their fourth straight trip to the World Series, and Many, uh, you know, baseball pundits rank it as the greatest um, team of all time. Um, and certainly those who don't call it the greatest recognize it as one of the greatest. And Pearson, uh, you know, although he was hurt much of the year and didn't have a great regular season, when it came to World Series time, Joe McCarthy, again, uh, you know, demonstrated his confidence in Pearson um, by giving him the ball. This time it was in game two um, and, uh, you know, entrusting the, the, uh, the game to him. Um, Pearson, uh, you know, pitched an amazing game. It was, there were uh, almost 60,000 folks at Yankee Stadium. Um, game one had been a close one. The Yankees had pulled it out. Um, uh, it was a late run, um, winning two to one. Um, but, you know, the Yankees hadn't dominated that game. They needed this one. Um, and uh, Pearson uh, was facing the guy who was a National League MVP, a guy named Bucky Walters, who won 27 games and had a 2.29 ERA. So hmm. more than two runs lower than Pearson's. But um, in this game, Pearson outdueled him. Um, the Yankees kind of cobbled together for a four nothing lead. Um, Pearson was perfect through three innings. He walked uh, a guy named Billy Werber, who was then caught stealing in the fourth. Then he threw three more perfect innings. So um, by the eighth inning, you know, he had given up only one walk. The Yankees were ahead four nothing. And the crowd was starting to sense that they were seeing something special. Um, the fans were on the edge of their seat. They were ooing and aahing with every pitch. Um, the first batter was a, a good hitter, a guy named Frank McCormick, outfielder for the Reds. And he made good contact, flight out deep to left. Um, but the ball was caught. 
And Pearson now had seven and a third no-hit innings, which tied the World Series record at that time. It had been set by another Yankee, a guy named Herb Pennock, in 1927. So the next batter was um, Pearson's old battery mate, Ernie Lombardi. And, um, you know, they knew each other well. Um, that hadn't helped Ernie in his first two at-bats. But this time um, he connected. He managed a clean single over second base, a line drive. Mm. Um, so, you know, the sort of the air went out of the stadium briefly. But then Pearson, you know, basically got back to work and uh, got the next two outs. And then in the ninth, he got the first two outs, gave up a harmless single with two outs, and then uh, got the third out. So he finished with a two-hit shutout. Um, and at that point, one of the greatest um, World Series pitching performances of all time. <laughs> it was a two-hitter wins 4 nothing in his four World Series appearances, like we said, three complete games, one game, he goes eight and two-thirds innings. He's 4-0 in the World Series with a 1.01 ERA. His winning percentage is perfect. He pitches this two-hit, 4 nothing shutout. And to me, the most amazing thing about it is after the game, instead of celebrating how great Pearson was, some writers took pot shots at him saying he never realized his potential. How crazy is that? Yeah, you know, it was crazy. And it shows sort of how deeply ingrained that narrative was with the sports writers. You know, they, they, um, you know, they basically, they bought into it and, you know, when, when he would, um, you know, pitch, a great game in, in the World Series, as he did every year, you know, that was sort of the the response and the refrain was, you know, yeah, you know, this sort of proves our point that he's too good um, to have the results that he's been getting in the regular season each year. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't fair, um, uh, but, uh, you know, that if you – if you read the contemporary accounts, you'll see that um, that kind of line of thinking quite often. Well, 1940 wound up being his final year with the Yankees. He went seven and five, um, and it ended with a significant injury after starting the year healthy for the first time while with the Yankees. Um, it started off really well. And then he has this awesome 13-inning complete game against the Indians. What happened afterwards? Yeah, so it is. It's kind of ironic, as you mentioned, Warren. It was sort of the first year where in quite a while where he'd been completely healthy in the spring. He's having a good year. He made the all-star team. Um, and then in the middle of the summer, uh, he uh, squared off against Bob Feller. And in that game, as you mentioned, it was a 13 inning complete game and he beat Bob Feller um, four to three. But in the process, he tore a ligament in his shoulder. And that was basically it for him um, for the season. And as it turned out, 
um, really for his career. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, he was traded to Cincinnati. Um, he just wasn't the same pitcher after that injury. Um, what were those final few years like for Monty, trying to hang on, playing in the PCL, and ultimately failing to make it back? What were those final baseball years like for Monty? I mean, it's not like he was he was really old. He was only 32, uh, that final year with the Reds when he went one and three and, you know, then had to try to claw his way back. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, Pearson thought he could come back again. He'd had arm problems before and, you know, I think, uh, only he knew how serious those had been, but I think, uh, he, uh, felt that the, pro- the ligament damage, you know, uh, was surmountable and that he could do what he'd done several times before come back from, uh, an injury. And so, uh, after the season, 1940, um, the Yankees did not win the American league pennant for the first time in several years. And they did sort of a, a, a rebuild. They, they cleaned house a little bit and Pearson was one of the um, people that they sent off the, uh, Cincinnati Reds, who had, um, you know, almost been no hit by him in the 1939 World Series, uh, knew how well he could pitch. And I think probably because he'd been injured before and come back, thought that, um, you know, he'd be able to recover again. And so they traded for him. Um, but uh, in 1941, uh, he only threw about 25 innings uh, for the Reds. And then, uh, you know, he just his arm never was right. He didn't perform well. It was clear. He was still, um, he was still suffering from the injury and the Reds uh, gave up on him, sold him to Hollywood in the Pacific coast league. And he he wasn't able to pitch for them other than one kind of token appearance. And then he shut it down for the 41 season as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, when I read your bio about Monty Pearson, Dan, it was such a, 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 well, first of all, kudos to you. What a great bio. And, you know, you read about Monty's career and how he rose to the occasion in the World Series, um, but his career sort of had a sad finish to it. And then you read about his post-baseball career, I mean, Really sad. He boxed a little, went to Cal Berkeley, participated in city sports-related activities, and then the scandal, which ultimately ended with his son being a jailer of his. Tell us about the scandal. What happened? And, man, what a sad end. Yeah, yeah, so after Pearson retired um, in 1942, um, he he's a smart guy, but he had not uh, attended college. You know, he'd gone straight into organized ball after high school. And so he decided to go back uh, and get his degree. He went to UC Berkeley in the mid-1940s, and he got a degree in public health. And after he got his degree, he was hired by the city of Fresno as uh, they called him a sanitarian, basically a public health official. And um, he was very well known in the area, obviously, because of his athletic success. Um, And he 
appeared to really love, love the limelight. And at that point, um, when he was working for the county as a sanitarian, he was, um, you know, he was very much in the public eye. He was speaking to uh, uh, civic groups regularly. Um, he was a musician as well. He was a talented guitar player. And um, he would do musical performances. Um, he was the uh, uh, director of the Fresno Bee, the newspaper in Fresno, sponsored an annual summer uh, baseball camp for local kids. And he was the director of that for several years. So he was very um, kind of visible, very active, and I think very well um, loved in, in the community. Um, he also ran for public office in 1952. He ran for county supervisor um, and made it to the um, sort of the November election. He made it through the primary, but he ultimately lost uh, lost that election. Um, but he was still serving as a public health official um, and, uh, you know, again, was was sort of a public figure in the area. And then um, and then, as you mentioned, the bombshell kind of hit. Um, in 1962, uh, he was indicted um, for having demanded bribes um, mm. from septic tank um, contractors. Uh, he had the authority to approve the installation of septic tanks, you know, that it was being done correctly. And the allegation was that, you know, he was taking bribes um, in order, you know, and then, and then approving installations that had been done incorrectly that were a threat to the public health. And so um, he was, he was um, tried and he was found guilty of um, one felony bribery count and uh, sentenced to jail time plus probation. And when I, um, when I did the biography, I tracked down Pearson's uh, granddaughter, his oldest granddaughter, a really wonderful a woman named Tammy Alexander, and I interviewed her, and she, uh, you know, told me that uh, her dad, who was uh, was Pearson's oldest son, Wesley Pearson, uh, he he'd just become a deputy sheriff at the time of um, of Pearson's conviction, and so when Pearson was uh, sentenced to jail time, um, Wesley was one of his jailers. Oh, awful. crazy. Awful. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, gosh, wow. You know, that's not the way you want the story to end, but unfortunately that's the way it does end. And when we take a look back at the life and the career of Monty Pearson, how should he be remembered? I think we can say there might be two different legacies, a terrific baseball legacy and a sad personal life legacy. What do you think? Well, you know, I don't know if the story really ends with his conviction. That was, uh, you know, in the early 60s. He Subsequently, he petitioned to have his probation terminated and his conviction set aside, and he was successful. And it's very. I couldn't find a lot of detail around, um, you know, what convinced the court to set aside his conviction. Um, but you know, it seemed to me that there maybe there was another side to the story, or that uh, in retrospect, mm -hmm. uh, maybe some additional information had come out. I don't know. I'm just speculating. 
but um, he did get some um, semblance of, you know, sort of closure and, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, a decision that um, went in his favor. So, uh, you know, I'll just put that out there. I'm not sure exactly, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what it says about his guilt or lack thereof. Um, And then also, uh, you know, he didn't disappear after his conviction. I mean, he was, uh, you know, still around in Fresno and still fairly visible for 15 or so years afterwards um, until until he died in uh, in 1978. So he was elected um, to the Fresno Athletic Hall of Fame in 1967, um, you know, and was, uh, you know, recognized in the press for, uh, you know, again, for, for his athletic career. Um, and the focus really was on his career, not on his um, conviction at that point. Um, and then uh, one of the things I included in the bio, because I thought it was very cool, was a quote from Ted Williams. Um, and, and Ted Williams in 1970 was asked what he thought about um, a rookie pitcher at that time, a guy named Burt Blylevin, who went on to mm-hmm. a Hall of Fame pitching career. And at that time, he was a rookie, though. And Williams basically said, you know, he's he's very smooth. He reminds me of Monty Pearson. Oh, Monty very Pearson. cool. Monty Pearson was one hell of a pitcher and everything he did was smooth. So anyway, to have Ted Williams kind of recognize um, you for your your pitching ability, I think that's quite a quite a testimony. So um, anyway, Pearson um, did work in real estate a bit um, as you know in in the seventies when he was uh, later in life, um, but then toward the end of the decade, his health began to fail and he passed away from cancer at age sixty nine. Uh, in January of 1978. And um, as you said, you know, his obituaries really did sort of um, talk about uh, two things, really kind of the the great World Series um, exploits, but also the, um, you know, the fact that his, uh, his second career ended in sort of a fall from grace when, when he was uh, convicted. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's a, it's an incredibly interesting story. He was a very interesting person to research. Uh, he left behind at least one really uh, wonderful family member who I had the uh, opportunity to speak with. Um, and yeah, you know, I think uh, definitely uh, his career and life were um, worthy of being remembered um, just because they were so eventful. Absolutely. I love doing stories like this. Guys who, who did something great on the field. That's what this is about. It's about what they did on the field. Monty Pearson, just a, a, a name that gets gets lost and it shouldn't be. I mean, he won a hundred games, had 94 complete games and, you know, arguably one of the greatest records in the history of the world series. You really can't do much more than what he did. Four games, four wins, a 1.01 ERA missed by one out from throwing four complete games. What a career 
Dramani Pearson. Dan, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Are you working on any other bios? You know, I'm taking a little break, <laughs> but I am I am planning to um, you know to do some more. I find them very enjoyable, and um, you know I always learn a lot. So I'm looking forward to uh, doing more in the future. Well, Dan, again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You've been a great guest. Warren, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed kind of sharing what I learned in all my research. And I hope that your audience um, also enjoys learning about this very interesting and talented uh, pitcher for the Yankees, Monty Pearson. Absolutely. Good stuff. In April 2017, I launched Sports Forgotten Heroes with the intention of talking about stars from the games we love to watch from all sports. Never did I think that more than four years later, I would still be doing this. At first, I had hoped someone would discover my little podcast, and I was shocked to see that about three dozen people listened to that first podcast about Billy Cannon. Well, here I am, almost four and a half years later, at more than 800 downloads every two-week period. I think that's pretty good considering... I don't have a marketing budget. All I can do is post notes about the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and hope for the best. Word of mouth is always great too. Like I said, I've been doing this for almost four and a half years and I do everything from hosting to writing, researching, finding my guests, and all of the editing. Sports Forgotten Heroes has come a long way, and now, after four and a half years, it's time to take a break. So, I would like to thank all of my loyal followers and listeners for all of your support. While I am stepping back for a bit, I will be back. So, stay tuned, and again, thank you for listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.